Hi, I'm Elise Kennedy. Welcome to Jordan's Startup Tech Series, where we host entrepreneurs, venture funds, and technology companies on trends across the industry. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Grant McCarthy, the founder of Tidal Venture Capital. Thanks for being on the show, Grant. Hi, Elise. Thank you very much. How are you? Yeah, pretty well, thank you. I'm keen to know a bit about where the fund start. Give some investors a bit of background. Sure. So Tidal Ventures, we started back in 2016. First fund started. It was a seed-focused investment fund. Talk a little bit more about the funds later, obviously. But just a bit of background. So prior to that, it was started between myself and a gentleman by the name of Murray Bleach, who's our chairman. Murray had a, a long career in investment banking, was head of Macquarie Bank in the US from the early 2000s through to the late 2000s. And then had a uh, another sort of decade career with um, IFM investors and as a non-executive director and uh, and the head of their IC. So a very institutional background from the perspective of understanding funds, funds management, governance, etc. I was completely opposite to that. I was a tech guy. Started my career, which will show my age, back in the late 90s with a company called Yahoo that people might remember. And sort of grew up in that business, had an eight and a half, nine year career with them in Australia and up in Asia Pacific and just um, lucked out, to be honest. As a young guy, I had a career within the business and corporate development side, as well as they gave me some PL responsibility for different products across Southeast Asia at times, etc. And just grew a really deep passion for uh, early stage technology businesses because we used to get to see so many of them and oh. also, also invest in a bunch of them. So yeah, so it's sort of formative years in doing technology investments now up to 22 years, I think I've been doing that for. And then and then started the fund with Murray, who I'd actually met in about 2012. We were co-investors in an early seed deal, a company called Society One, who ended up one of the Australia's largest and alternative personal lending platforms into uh, into the consumer lending space. And for those not familiar with some of the VC funds out there, how would you say that Tidal differs to some of its peers? Yeah, sure. It's a really good question in the sense of there are literally, you know, compared to even when we started four years ago, so many more venture funds in the Australian market these days. I guess, you know, the approach we've taken to building this as a, you know, a really sustainable funds management business, but also focused on building out that, you know, technology landscape out of Australia, which we think has some really unique capabilities on building technology businesses. The way I've approached it is very much, you know, two core areas, right? So one is diversity and people of thought inside your fund is really, really critical. Off the, the things that different people see unique within businesses or markets or entrepreneurs is unique to individuals and their experiences. So we've built a really diverse team of people background wise and capability wise. We've got finance people, we've got technology product people, we've got engineering people to really give us a really great you know, um, view of what we think great looks like um, when we look at these investments. The second thing is we've, we're probably a little bit different in the fact that the way we approach these investments is very much, we're, we're very strong on the thematic side of things. So we'll talk about later, no doubt as well, but we do really functionally look at markets first and why markets are evolving and changing and how technology will impact those markets particularly. But then because of our backgrounds, we kind of overlay, you know, what is more of a traditional fundamentals approach to that investment as well. Well, which is obviously really hard at an early stage in a business because there isn't a lot of data or information in these early stage businesses to try and yeah. do any sort of fundamentals analysis. But once again, that's really trying to weed out and understand what this business might look like if it's really good. And if the early signals and the types of technologies they're using, the market structures they're going into, et cetera, actually lend itself to an, a business model and economics within that business model, 
that we think could become really sustainable and profitable over the medium to long term, right? So it's this combination of, you know, really strong understanding of markets, why they evolve, how they evolve with technology, but also bringing to an early stage space and more fundamentals approach to analysis around what that business might look like if it was to be a successful business. And I understand that the fund does work a bit differently. There's a few different stages and a few different seedings. Talk me through that part. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the fundamental model we've tried to look at of how you build a really sustainable funding platform for early stage businesses. We kind of, I started following a few of these, what they called, they started back in the GFC in the, in the US, um, around 2007, 2008. And they're actually called institutional seed funds. It was a title they came up with. Probably the most famous of those is a company called First Round Capital, quite similar in the sense of background of the founders of that venture fund were literally founders themselves. They were operators, founders, some have worked in VCs before, but fundamentally what they were trying to do was actually work with founders to enable them to build a business and not make all the same mistakes they'd made, right? So when the founder gets this early capital, the last thing that they want to do, and as an investor, you want them to do is burn that capital on things that you know, or they might know are wrong to do with that capital kind of thing, right? And so, you know, the the kind of the concept of this seed phase of helping these businesses is very staged in the sense of, you know, we often talk about the world in things that you do know, things that you don't know, and things that you like just don't know you don't know kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so helping these founders through that journey of, of validating the things that they thought they knew, right, through using this capital, getting them through that phase into something that they're trying to test and learn from in order to build, whether it's a pricing model in their business to go to market whether it's a go-to-market plan, whether it's the technology that they're actually using to build that product, solving these problems with them through these phases at Seed is what we tend to find is the most sustainable way to build these businesses. Often, you know, as we see in the US at the moment, some early stage businesses actually raise a lot of capital, right? And that can actually be bad for them, right? Because they've got so much capital, they're just throwing money at problems. Whereas in Australia, we've found we tend to be really good at focusing on a problem and solving that well. And hopefully that problem is a material problem for customers and helping the company and the founder figure those things out is something that we're, you know, we're really focused on. And, and as we said, that just can take time sometimes, right? Like this concept of every business taking seed capital and sort of, you know, within months of 12 months raising their Series A from institutional investors, that's just not something that happens all the time, right? And sometimes it just takes time for an, a concept or an idea or a problem space to evolve and for them to find, hopefully, what we're trying to really do with them is find that product market fit during that phase. I'm curious, is there different monetization strategies? How do you think about that journey? Probably the biggest area that we spend time on with founders once they've got their products in market and let's say they've won their first, you know, I'm a, let's say I'm a B2B SaaS business. I've won my first 20 or 30 customers, right? I think I've now actually got something that looks like an interesting product, right? Because people are actually giving me money every month or every quarter and paying for it is actually helping them try and understand how they can create value through pricing and packaging and what business model most suits. So a really good example that we've found over time is a lot of companies go straight out with a, a SaaS model, like a subscription model, one month, quarterly, 12 months in advance, whatever it might be. And what they learn over time is, is that the businesses that are actually using that piece of software for workflow or otherwise are actually doing something within it really, really consistently that's actually driving economic value for that customer, right? So really interesting example of that is, you know, we've got some assets in the logistics space and obviously e-commerce has gone nuts over the last sort of 18 months or so. And what we were finding within those businesses was that like 
those businesses are actually leaving a lot of value on the table because they're actually only charging a subscription model, right? Rather than actually starting to take some economics out of the consumption elements of what the customers were using in that platform, whether that was buying a shipping rate, whether it was using uh, some other feature like an insurance product or something like that. So helping these companies understand that, hey, Yes, you might be taking your subscription fee, but you're showing value in these other segments of your product and being able to charge on a consumption basis so you actually get leverage out of your platform is something that, you know, we spend a lot of time helping them think about and that's, you know, proving to be quite successful. And Grant, I understand that you're opening a new fund in July too. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, no, we're really excited, at least to be launching the title follow-on opportunity fund. Target of the fund's $120 million. And our focus for this has been part of the strategy we've been following is to hopefully build some amazing businesses at seed stage and want to follow on into those winners as they move into their institutional rounds of Series A, Series B and onwards. And we've also found over the last four years, as we've worked with you know a bunch of founders in their businesses, some that we've invested in, some actually we haven't. And we're starting to see a number of opportunities to get into some really unique deal opportunities with those founders as they've moved into their later institutional rounds and are asking us to participate in those rounds to, to continue to support them as they um, as they grow into really meaningful businesses. So we're super excited about it. Once again, part of our longer term strategy is title ventures. And, you know, hopefully we'll have as much success with this as we have been having with the um, the seed funds for our OPs. Thoughts around what are some of your top thoughts around some of your investments that you've got? Name a few that you think are interesting. Oh, in terms of companies? Sure. I'll mention some out of the first fund to start with because they're obviously being the most mature. And these are companies that we've taken on that seed journey right through to institutional investments. You know, two of them have gone through their Series B rounds and one just going through their Series A at the moment. One of our earlier ones was a company called Predict HQ out of New Zealand, actually. We took to the US really early. It's one of our core kind of strategies about for the right assets, making sure that they're playing in, you know, the largest market market in the world from a sales perspective and customer's perspective. And Predict HQ, one of our thematics called observability and primary data, right? And so to put it really simply, this business, what it did was it aggregated all of this information and data around event, right? And an event can be anything from a conference, a concert, a sporting event or whatever. And what they figured out was those events obviously had an impact on different kinds of businesses in those locations where those events were happening. Obviously, those businesses that were impacted by those events maybe saw increased demand for their product also Mm. in that time and location, right? And so what they were able to figure out with this data was being able to go to those companies that were impacted and say, hey, we can help you forecast what demand is coming for your business in these locations when these events occur. And with you know that, then you've got opportunities to either reprice that product or service because demand is going to go through the roof or B, you can resource your business better by knowing in the future where that demand is potentially coming from. And they've had huge success with that. You know, they won some major logos early like Airbnb and Uber, just to name a few, and went through a cycle of seed into Series A and now Series B, where they've ended up with some amazing sort of US-led institutional investors like Lightspeed Capital and sort of Hell Ventures, who are amazing sort of tech VCs out of the US market. Did they have any competitors? Uh, It's an interesting one. There's certainly people that help companies forecast or forecast demand probably more so from an historical perspective, not really trying to understand future areas where demand might fall, so to speak. So we haven't seen a lot of companies that have actually sort of built systems that are doing like predictive demand, as we would call it, right? Uh, Into around in a future event space or 
And, you know, as their business model evolved, because obviously the last 18 months, there hasn't been physical events in most locations. So, you know, the system, they've been able to push into what they call virtual events. So, you know, they're able to forecast within 99.5% accuracy of the TV audience for the Super Bowl this year, for example, right? And obviously that impacts a huge number of businesses, whether you're Domino's Pizza or whatever it might be. And that's in C1. Have you got anything else in some of the other funds that kind of give a guide as to how they differentiate? Probably the, the other one we're really excited about at the moment that sits in Seed Fund 2, which is our second fund, is a company called Sajari. And Sajari is, is a really interesting business. It's actually a search technology business. So yes, think Google, but not in the sense of you go to Sajari to search the entire web, so to not speak. back to your Yahoo days in the 90s? No, no, no not, <laughs> not completely back there, but this one did pique my interest because of that. No, so these guys focus effectively on enabling e-commerce businesses to do a better job of helping customers search for the products they're looking for on their website, their e-commerce website, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the most frustrating experiences we all have is obviously we go to a site, we type in black shorts or something, and, you know, the results just suck, basically, right? You're getting yellow shorts, you're getting two bigger shorts, doesn't matter <laughs> what size you are, whatever it might be. So these guys help businesses effectively make sure the search result is the most accurate for that specific customer that's doing that search. And the benefit of that is obviously they get a quite a significant increase in both conversion from people looking for something during search into the shopping cart, And then the purchase rate or the purchase conversion rates from that shopping cart to completion because that experience is so much better, more efficient and and just more accurate for the user. I think their biggest customer in Australia is catch.com and they saw, you know, an enormous economic benefit from from using this product over the last sort of, you know, 12 to 18 months during this cycle of where, you know, obviously consumption's boom for all online commerce, so to speak. It's a run we're really excited about. It's also in the US, founders based over there now. And the other one probably, it's also in the first fund, but was a later investment for it's a company called Frankie One. And Frankie, it's a fintech business that effectively helps any financial services or utility organization or whatever it might be, help KYC and AML their clients as they're signing up for a digital wallet or digital product or process, so to speak. And it's seen enormous growth in the last sort of 12 to 14 months. It's had an amazing run going through its Series A around at the moment. And then, you know, to, to be honest, is shooting the lights out of it. I have actually heard about one in a small world of things. And <laughs> very, very, few... very popular with banks at the moment, that one. Yeah, that's what I was thinking and probably could uh, have some applications in the gaming space, which also some of the stock. And actually the crypto space as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree focus that compliance standpoint and I'm curious because you live and breathe it every day what are you seeing in the valuation side around what is the you know are they all-time highs you've seen similarities with the equity market it's obviously the most topical conversation we always end up in with either our limited partners or founders Mm -hmm. etc look the end of the day you know, from our approach anyway, right? Valuation is all about making sure that it becomes not only, you know, a sustainable investment for ourselves, where hopefully there's decent returns for our investors into it, but to make sure also the founders, you know, feel like that they've got a strong partner in growing the business, right? And I guess what I mean by that is like, look, there's hundreds of different ways to value these businesses. What, you know, our approach fundamentally is we look at a number of different indicators around the market, the business, 
the unit economics potential of the business, you know, their cash burn rates relative to the rest of the market of things that we see, et cetera. So it's not what I would call an exact science of pulling, a, obviously, a DCF or something like that out of the bag. But there is a methodology to how you come up with valuation. And like I said, just making sure that, you know, expectation-wise, that valuation is acceptable to all parties within the mm-hmm. transaction, right, within the investment. Because a number of times, and we probably saw this more so back when we were starting, like you did see valuation problems tried to be solved through the structure of a transaction whereby you know you put more onerous terms on a founder because they wanted a higher valuation and our experience is is that those kinds of situations don't normally work out that well simply because like startups are imperfect right no one kind of knows what's going to happen with them over the next period of time and obviously sometimes they go really well and everyone's happy but a lot of the time they don't meet the expectation of what they were forecasting to do right and that's where those structures sort of, you know, have have issues, for want of a better term. It is all about finding the right balance between expectation of valuation and putting a, a, a really solid methodology and explaining that to the founder of how you've come up with that value, but making sure that they feel like that's a value that they can support with how they're going to grow the business, right? In saying that, the market at the moment, we do definitely see within different stages, both probably a bit later stage seed and certainly into kind of the institutional series A rounds and beyond. There is definitely a weight of capital trying to chase good quality assets at the moment. And that is no doubt increasing valuations on assets right um from from our perspective anyway and that's no doubt also a proxy for where capital markets you know grown over the last couple of years i mean it's been an amazing kind of run from a technology perspective and that's also to weight of capital particularly in the us market but also just you know like as these companies early stage companies grow into these sort of later stage institutional rounds etc the time under which they are going to stay private as we saw in this last cycle is just staying longer right? So people, both institutional and high net worth family offices and whatever are understanding that, you know, the the cycling of these businesses as they invest in them is not a like, it's not a three to four year exit to an IPO kind of thing. Like, yeah, these things stay, you know, they stay private much longer. And, you know, you can point Ubers and the Airbnbs and these kind of things being, you know, 10 year old businesses and raising tens of billions of dollars and then only exiting kind of, you know, for institutional investors to get more access to capital and the early guys to sell out, right? That length of time certainly extending and therefore the amount of capital in that process of chasing those good assets because they're private longer, we are seeing put in pressure. I guess what's starting to be interesting, but as well is, and this is more so the US and probably Australia, but a little bit in Australia we'll talk about in a sec is there's just many more exit points for investors through that journey, even into capital markets now. It's not, you know, in the US, it's not like people have to go and do a roadshow and do a front door IPO. I mean, the SPAC phenomena is sort of here, right? And it's interesting talking to later stage businesses in the US, why they see the benefits in that. And they do really see benefits in it around, you know, there's certainty around pricing for them, certainty around the amount of capital they're going to raise, part of that SPAC process. They don't have to go and do roadshows <laughs> effectively. <laughs> Favorite. <laughs> uh, but for CEOs and that kind of stuff, right, they're just trying to run their business, right? There's, there's certain appeals to that. Like we will see what happens and how valuations pan out on a bunch of these things. But if it's a good quality asset and the founder's like, that's a pathway for me, that seems a legitimate process. Obviously, you've also just got your direct listings processes that have started to work much better in the US. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, I guess, like what we've seen is there's been, you know, there's been definitely some earlier businesses get up on the ASX 
uh, earlier technology businesses, incredibly successful. I mean, once again, like you, no one can say Afterpay hasn't been successful from listing early, but there's been a lot that that haven't worked as well, right? And we've sort of, you know, late last year and into this year, a lot of the IPOs just haven't been as successful from a pricing perspective post listing. And we probably think that's a bit more, there is certainly in Australia, we find anyway, this maturity level that a business does need to be at. You kind of be a listed company and sustainably manage investors and their expectations and making sure the quality of their information and their forecasting is really solid. So, you know, basically making sure they meet the promises they make in their prospectus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a few issues lately, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think it's, you know, we don't, we don't see listing business as a bad thing. We see it as absolutely a pathway for them. And it can be a really attractive pathway once again, right, rather than private capital cycles sometimes. But it's very much to the nature of the business and, and to the founders for that matter. I mean, we find we could line up 22 different founders across the portfolio and I reckon you would have 50-50 or 60-40 in terms of the split of people saying, no, I just want to keep this business private and keep running it and growing it into a really big business versus one saying, no, I see capital markets as a really important strategic pathway for me in order to build a really large sustainable business. The question is, where is the client appetite coming from? Is this space getting saturated with new funds being constantly added? The the LP base? Yeah. it's a Once again, it's a really, I, I would call it an uneven space at the moment, right? So you've certainly got a market structure. You've got some larger funds now that are kind of the branded funds in the market, being the Blackbirds and Airtrees and Square Pegs and Main Sequences and that. And they've done a really good job building and convincing some of Australia's largest institutional investors, particularly the super funds. This is a great asset class. This is a really important asset class in their alternatives bucket and they need to, you know, invest in it. And those guys are starting to get some serious wins, right? Like some of the results, even we've seen in the last couple of weeks with Guru and those kind of sales, they're they're exceptional returns for investors, right? Over relatively short periods of time still. I mean, you know, a cloud, I can't remember how old this business was, is that 1.6 or 1.8 billion transaction. That's a really decent price. Right. So I think, you know, but as the market starts to get a little bit more sophisticated, what we are seeing is that those family offices, wealth managers, and to an extent, the institutions starting to understand more the staging of venture right yeah. from early stage through to later stage processes and starting to understand that they do want to have exposure across multiple segments of that venture value chain, for want of a better term. So it's definitely competitive and it's becoming more competitive. And it will certainly over time be more about what the performance is of your actual fund rather than just the, you know, the marketing and the promises people are making right to their investors but you know we see it as it's a competitive market but it's a market that's growing phenomenally quickly and a market that to be frank only eight years ago or nine years ago was only really forming again so for it to get to where it's got to in that space of time and some of the returns that it's making for investors and and also just the asset class itself within alternatives being a really important one now that investors are really taking the time to look at we think so you know it's a, it's a fantastic result for the market and industry I might just and ask the, founder, one the founders but- as well by the way or Founders as well. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> one last question that I've got is just around if you look at some of the listed holdings that we've got, what would you say is a pitfall that us on our publicly listed side should look out for? Uh, how long is this podcast again? <laughs> 
look, I mean, it's not it's not complex, right? I mean, I think some of the time the challenge with some of these technology businesses that get into listed markets and what they are pushing in terms of what they're positioning themselves as, people just need to take this back to some of those core fundamentals again, right? Around what markets is that business servicing? What is their right to a you know sustainable competitive advantage either through their channel to market or their technology? Why and how are their margins going to maintain? Once again, is that because of just a market structure or is it actually because of the technology and the IP that they've built around their business? And then lastly, just, you know, the quality of the business and the management team, et cetera. I mean, they're things that from a listed market perspective, that's where great listed market investors have always run, so to speak, right? They've identified truly great management teams that are running great businesses in really big markets that are highly profitable. You know, we can all get caught up sometimes in the growth of some of these businesses. And I guess one of the, from a listed market perspective is always a bit harder is maybe to try and look under the growth sometimes and understand why that growth is there. Is it just being bought or is it actually sustainable because what the product is that is being sold to the customer is so important and so valuable mm. that it's going to always win customers within that market, so to speak, without just having a big sales function or marketing function. So, you know, once again, I, like it's not, there's nothing more than the fundamentals, but I, mm. I do find sometimes people get ahead of themselves around some of these businesses in terms of the amount of growth and that's what is really appealing. Some of the more fundamental elements of what that technology and that product could actually be and how profitable that product can be over the medium to long term. Great. Grant, I could ask a thousand more questions, but I'm conscious of time. So thank you once again for being on the show. Grant MacArthur, founder of Tidal Ventures. We will touch base with you again in the next couple of months and see what's happening in VC land. Thanks, mate.